You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer, and the Crown Plaza at Historic Union Station and Conference Center. Uh, Today we are at edge talking with someone so powerful and so influential that he compelled me to push the podcast posting back a day just for him dave neff thank you for letting us come here hey it's a pleasure to be on i don't know about that intro though oh it's 100 percent accurate and even if i could say no to you there's no way i could say no to sarah holsapple who's a absolutely phenomenal PR person. So if you're looking for PR help and you don't want to hire veteran strategies, which I don't understand, but, but I do understand Sarah Holsapple, Holsapple communications, please contact her. She's absolutely wonderful. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. We hired her back this year. Well, keep hiring her back because yeah. you're going to get good things. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from, and then we'll talk about not only EDGE in general, but EDGEX coming up, which is a terrific program. Well, um, I'm an indie guy, born and raised, and uh, feel a little silly kind of telling about myself, given some of the true legends you've had on the show, Robert. It's been it's been fun listening the last uh, six, nine months you guys have had this show, and, and kudos to you for kind of the following that you've built. But um, I was born here, and... Grew up really mainly around 75th and Allisonville, so northeast side, Steinmeier neighborhood, and uh, went to Heritage Christian from third grade to 12th, and then went off to Ball State University, Chirp Chirp, uh, Harvard of the Midwest, as uh, some people like to call it, small group of us, but uh, but I uh, had a great four years in Muncie, believe it or not, and uh, proud to be a Cardinal, and so I've been back in Indy now about a dozen years and my career has, has been unique, as all of ours are, but um, started in sports entertainment, worked for Pacer Sports Entertainment for four years, 07 to 11, which uh, was an interesting time to be with the Pacers after the brawl a couple years before. Uh, the Colts had just won a Super Bowl. The Great Recession was hitting. It was kind of a perfect storm of factors working against the Pacers, but I learned a lot. We can talk more about that and really... As I look at where I'm at today, a lot of my opportunities and relationships lead back to the Pacers, um, starting with none other than Jim Morris, who I know you had on here recently. Um, then I went to Exact Target in the fall of 2011 and rode that wave for uh, just under three years and, and saw everything from us going public to getting acquired by Salesforce. And then I stuck around about six months after the acquisition before coming to really be kind of the, the founding staff member of Edge uh, Mentoring, which we can talk about here in a little bit. So it'll be uh, almost six years, end of this, end of 2019, it'll be six years that I've been with Edge. 
And uh, on the personal side, I'm married. My wife, Joelle, and I will be celebrating six years in a month or two. And then we've got a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, Lincoln and Nora, and we live in Butler, Tarkington. So life's full right now with, uh, with little kids at home. The Heritage Christian to Ball State cultural shift, what's it like when you go from a school like Heritage Christian, which is a terrific school. I know several folks that send their kids there. And my kids go and went to Ron Colley, so I can understand the need for additional sort of, I don't want to say religious instruction, but that's probably the best term for it. Did you have just a blast at Ball State? Because if you didn't, you were the only person I know who didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Robert, growing up at a private school, I'm, I'm grateful for my experience at Heritage and, you know, was raised in a, in a, in a faith-filled home with you know, Christian parents. Church was a big part of my upbringing. But I remember having the thought when I was looking at colleges, you know, a lot of my friends at Heritage went up to Taylor or Anderson or Indiana Wesleyan. And I don't know if it was foresight at the age of 18 or what, but I most of my exposure to a non-sort of Christian school crowd was through playing sports, so through playing club soccer, through playing AAU basketball. And so I just remember being like, you know, I could go to one of those schools, um, Christian colleges, but I felt, you know, Ball State had a program, TCOM, that I was really set on. I ended up switching to sports administration, but that I was like, you know what? from both career interests as well as like, it's more truly the real world, right? I think some of these private schools, while great, and I've got only positive things to say about heritage, it is a little bit of a bubble, especially back then in terms of just diversity of thought, diversity of skin color, I mean, everything, Um, obviously faith, religion. Um, So Ball State was a really formative four years for me because I was always the, the guy that and I certainly had close friends, but I ran in a bunch of different circles. I played club soccer a couple of years. I was active in my major. You know, I was part of an on-campus ministry called Crew. I worked in the athletic department. So I was always somebody that was kind of just trying to get to know different people while I was on campus and not just going to dinner or lunch with the same three, four, or five people, you know, every day of, of college. Fast forwarding a little bit, your matriculation to the Pacers. How did that come about? And yeah. you mentioned it was very... Uh, impactful when I was in the mayor's office in 2010, I think it was July, maybe that's when we did the 33 and a half million. I think it was Mm -hmm. the first kind of insertion of the mayor's office of of the CIB slash mayor's office into helping the Pacers in, in what you said was an interesting time, a tough time, Mm -hmm. but the Pacers are a, are a significant organization within the city. What was it like to work for them and some of the people, the leaders you met while you were there. I mean, it it set my life certainly on a, a path that I couldn't have predicted, you know, back in 2007. Um, even though at that time we were dead last out of the 30 NBA teams in terms of attendance. So 30th out of 30, we had all these perceived thugs on our team. So we were battling that image, which certainly here in, in the Midwest we're not fans of. We want good, hardworking you know, honest players. Was it uh, about your first year that Jamal Tinsley had his yeah, issue? Yeah, Conrad incident. Yeah, that was first first or second year. I, I literally remember, I think we called a meeting at one point to say, what else could happen that's worse than what we were experiencing? And, uh, this legitimately happened. And it was like if a player murdered someone. I mean, that was kind of like where we were at. But I'm 22, I'm 23. I'm 
working in pro sports uh, in my hometown, which with a sports administration degree on the front end of the recession, I was like, this is great. I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was single and going to work at, at the time, Conseco Fieldhouse every day. And, you know, you're, you're bumping into guys like Larry Bird or Herb Simon or Jim Morris, you know, Rick Fusion. I mean, all, all those guys I had interactions with, which was, um, you know, you had to learn early on not to get put in the fan camp, right? You know, if you become a fan, it's like, okay, you're always going to be a fan. And so I really just tried to work hard at what could I learn from these guys, men and women down there, um, be professional, be respectful, ask good questions, and, and um, you know, just go to work and put your uniform on every day and do the best that you can. And what exactly did you do for them? So I started in ticket services. So my first couple of years, I had a base of 500 season ticket accounts, and it was my job to manage those and try to renew them year over year. And ultimately, if I was good, not just renew them, but grow their investments. So go from a mini season, 10 game plan to a half season to a full season, go from two to four tickets. And it was tough. Like I said, we were, our renewal rate was maybe 65%, which when a team's doing better, it's probably north of 90. Um, so it was, it was tough times, but I really learned how to differentiate from a service standpoint that, cause I had no control over the product on the court, right? It was more, Hey, how do I add value beyond the court? So through experiences, through assets that we had, you know, upgrading a uh, some season ticket holders from the balcony to the lower level or doing something special for a father and son or a mother daughter coming out to a game and really trying to just build that bridge between, between the organization and our season ticket holders. So I did that for a couple years and, you know, feel like I had some, some good success because every nine months I was taking on more responsibility. Part of that was, I think a lot of my colleagues were uh, frustrated because it was, it was tough to sell during that time. So they were moving on to other teams around the country but I just kept kind of taking on more responsibility here in my hometown. And so my last year or two there, I was our director of suites and premium seating. So sold all the suites at Banker's Life, primarily, obviously, to the companies here in central Indiana. And that, you know, at a young age, to, to be able to be selling into the C-suite of a lot of these companies, um, I was just able to meet a lot of great people. And things are, I mean, you can't live relative, right? You have to live in, in a sense in an absolute world. And by relative, I mean, you can't look at other people and they're more beautiful or they have more money or they're more successful because you'll just, you end up getting in a crop circle of depression, right? So you can't do that. But relative to what the Colts were doing at the same time, that had to make the Pacers gig even tougher. Oh yeah. I, I remember I'm more than one occasion having a, a renewal discussion with a season ticket holder and it went something like this. Uh, well, you know, we've got Pacers and Colts tickets and because of the economy or, you know, we're only able to keep one and we're going to drop our Pacers. And so I kind of developed at the time a slight vendetta against the Colts. I was kind of <laughs> quietly happy when they would lose because I was like, this is, you know, this is, I don't know, it just was affecting my livelihood. Uh, it literally was. So obviously I, I love the Colts and I believe Indianapolis is big enough to support two successful pro sports teams. But at the time it was... It was tough. And, and well, but ten years before that, the opposite problem. Totally. Peyton changed this town into a football town there for the, a, the Reggie Miller's with the Pacers and Peyton hasn't yeah. come around yet. Yeah. You worked you mentioned a few people at the Pacers. Uh, Larry Bird, who's more than welcome to come on the podcast. Jim Morris, who has come on the podcast. And I'm actually gonna try to work through Jim to get Mr. Simon who's a really engaging, funny guy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And there are others, Greg Schenkel, who I'm sure you worked with at some point, uh, Rick Fusen, Bill Benner, mm-hmm. uh, who has come on the podcast. What was it like to see those leaders, particularly, let's say, Jim Morris, because I know there's not a lot of interaction with Larry Bird, but uh, see Jim Morris and everything he did for this city in his Rolodex, which is exhaustive, see that up close every day. Well, I'll tell you a quick story on Jim Morris. So I came in 07. I think he joined in 08, you know, after he got back from Rome, uh, from the World Food Program. And I remember there was like an internal memo that went around that there was going to be an announcement. We were going to name a new team president, Jim Morris. And at the time, I'm 22, 23. I'm like, who's Jim Morris? You know, <laughs> I grew up here, but I was like, I, you know, my dad's a physician, so I wasn't really wired in the business community and um, started Googling probably at the time, you know, his bio and reading about all that he'd done, right? Going back to being uh, Luger's chief of staff to Lilly Endowment Water Company, Rome. I'm like, wow, that's an impressive resume, you know? And so then we had this kind of all hands meeting and getting to meet him. And, you know, there was a lot of people that put a lot of work into turning the image, the brand of the Pacers around, you know, from 2008 to current day. But we were hemorrhaging corporate partners, corporate sponsors, and to see one man's influence where he could literally pick up the phone to Old National Bank and be like, we really need your support. You know, the team, the community needs to rally around. If Indy doesn't have the Pacers, you know, this is this is not good for the city. And I, I don't know how much credit he gets. He should get a lot because he really helped us reconnect to the corporate and civic community, CIB, in a, in a way that um, I felt like things were headed the opposite direction, just as kind of a young, naive 23-year-old. And the overall economy wasn't helping either. Oh, no. I mean, it was, like I said, 08, 09 were the, were the, de- you know, the darkest years. And so he, um, I think just the credibility and respect that he, that he brought to the organization in partnership with the Simons. Um, I mean, the Simons are incredible owners. There were rumors back then that they were looking to move the team, and I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think they're the longest tenured owners now, right, in the NBA, 1983. So if not the longest, they've got to be up there. And so their commitment to central Indiana is just remarkable. Well, to, to uh, toot the horn of the Leaders and Legends podcast through previous guests, uh, you should listen to the Jim Morris podcast uh, as he talks about a lot of these things that Dave has mentioned. And please... If you have time, listen to the podcast with David Frick, which I have to say is my favorite because you just simply don't know what this man has done until you listen to the podcast. And one of the things that David Frick did in his time as deputy mayor was negotiate the purchase of the Pacers by the Simons Mm -hmm. and said, you've got to buy this team. And he tells that story in the podcast. You mentioned Jim Morris, and I'll get your take on this opinion by this fellow I know you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but Mitch Daniels called Jim Morris the most important non-elected official in modern Indianapolis. I wouldn't, ar- I wouldn't argue with it. You know, I'm 30-something here in the city, but from everyone I've met or, or heard of, I it would be hard to find someone else that could take that title. I think it's fair to say. And, you know, an observation I've had, I've never considered running for any sort of political office at all or or even worked on campaigns. But you look at the trend amongst 
folks like Jim Morris, maybe a Mark Miles, again, hasn't run for office, but they all worked on campaigns or part of staffs, you know, back then. And I, and I think there's, and, and Robert, I know your background working for, for Mayor Ballard, there's a, there's a pattern there for, I think, young people to potentially follow. Because whether, whether you want to get into politics or not, the people you will meet, right, and the, the opportunities and the access and the exposure, um, you know, I'm a pretty goal-oriented person, but the older even I get in life, I'm realizing you life kind of unfolds and you kind of have to take what the wind will give you. And I think if you put yourself in the center of a lot of dots, like working on a campaign, there's just going to be, I think, a lot of opportunity that, that comes from that if you work hard and treat people well. And Well, and it's an interesting point to make because it's probably harder now than, well, it's not harder now than ever because there was this thing called the Civil War. But it's difficult sometimes to put that stuff aside, to put apart, to, to shut yourself off from, the, one of the easiest things in the world is to be angry at other people instead of yourself. And how do you navigate that? And that's a question I want to ask you in a few minutes. But when I talk to or used to talk to people, classes and students and stuff like that, when I was in the mayor's office and, and since then, I would tell them all, get involved in politics. You'll meet the best people you've ever met in your life. And you won't even care how they vote. And when you reach that point, then you have conquered the impulse to be bitter. And a lot of what we do on this podcast is put people together from different uh, backgrounds and different political parties who get along. Um, I've got one, a podcast. We have a podcast coming up with Mike McDaniel and Robin Winston, who were chairman of the respective Republican and Democrat parties when uh, back in the day. We've got one coming up with Paul Okeson and Michael Connor, good friends, uh, chiefs of staff for different mayors from different parties. At Edge, is it difficult to shut off that noise? Because you get 100, 200, 300 people together, it's a lot of diversity. I've been to one of your events. I mean, you, you have to make sure that everybody's comfortable. Yeah. And how do you do that? That's a great question. You know, I think about, we keep talking about him, but Jim Morris and others have said this. You know, he transcends politics, right? R's, D's, wherever you line up. And I would like to think that at Edge, the work that we're doing with whole life intergenerational mentoring, like this is sort of a universal um, thing that I think everyone should want more of in their life, whether that's as a mentee, young person, hungry to want to grow, a mentor who's had some reps in life that wants to give back. And a lot of our mentors don't just do it because they want to give back. It's more, they'll tell you, they get 5 to 10x out of every every unit that they put into Edge. And so you know, our application doesn't ask for, How'd you vote or what's your political affiliation? Um, diversity is something that we are continually striving to be better at. I'm a white male. Um, our, our board has more white males than non-white. And so we're trying to kind of be very intentional and sincere in terms of like even at the highest ranks of the organization, how that's reflected. You've been to some of our events. You know, our events are, you know, more white than I'd like for them to be, but we're trying to make progress against that gradually and do it in a very sincere way, not a forced way. But um, I think we try to rally folks around something that's probably a much more altruistic, 
common good. We want to see the flourishing of all people and 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 their lives and their respective, not just professional lives, but personal spiritual journeys. And so we really feel like this avenue of whole life, one mentor with five or six mentees, a couple hours a month, um, you know, it's 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 effective, and it's people really just sharing their lives, sharing their stories more than trying to, you know, propagate some, some message across some uniform message across every single group. And at your events, you see people because you know, a lot of these folks, some better than others, but you know, overwhelming percentage are people, you know, Mm -hmm. you see them talking and do you ever go, man, look how well this is going. They must, you know, politics isn't getting the way of this. I know how person A votes and I know how person B votes and let's see. And they're just working together because that's the overwhelming theme of the podcast. The overwhelming lesson, which is a better word of the podcast is how much people talk about working together to make Indianapolis better. And it's been that way for 50 plus years now. And to me, I see edge as an offshoot of that atmosphere and mentality. That's a great observation. I mean, I, I have thought, what if, could Edge work? Uh, would it have been as effective or flourished or grown as much if it started in New York City or Chicago or Atlanta? You know, pick another market. And I do think there's something unique and special about Indianapolis and about the examples of, of those that have gone before us in terms of working across the aisle or working across even faith backgrounds to really accomplish something much bigger than any one individual or one party or one faith religion could, could accomplish on its own. And so I, I think you're on to something because I, um, I'm, you know, I'll be very upfront, you know, this is edge is a faith-based organization, Christian explicitly, we ask our mentors to sign a statement of faith. I think how we go about that, we don't require it of mentees. We go about it, I believe, in a very winsome, hopefully unifying, non-divisive way. And unfortunately, the the brand of Christianity is probably not perceived by many as being winsome and unifying. That's to be fair. Um, and having grown up in this church and over time making my faith my own and not just my parents, you know, I think my observation is Christianity is a great speaking religion, but oftentimes a terrible listening, you know, religion. And so even in my own life, having friends that are Muslim, Jewish, and just seeking to understand where they're coming from and how they see the world, uh, is something I can continue to get better at, but it's something I really try to be intentional about. Um, so does that help? Absolutely. And then how does edge find its people? Well, there's a few tactics there and some I'd say they just find us, but so if someone is listening to, forgive me for someone's, this is what I meant to ask. If someone's listening to the podcast and they're like, this sounds really great. Yeah. Edgementoring.org is our digital footprint, our website. Um, you can go on there. Mentees are 22 to 34. Typically mentors are generally 40 and older. So you can kind of see, do I fit one of these buckets? Do I not? Um, you know, we, 
we've launched about Robert over the last five years, about 175 edge groups. So a group is one mentor with five or six mentees. So I'd say groups are sort of the tip of the spear for people that are like, man, I need more of this kind of this third space. It's not my work. It's not my church, but a third space to engage in these, you know, whole life intergenerational mentoring relationships. I think most people that are coming to edge, this is in our question from our application is they're looking for community. They're looking for, if you're a mentee, like-minded peers. Um, and then some are just like, I want a mentor. And and for me, you know, I've always, I guess, sought that out intuitively. I, I, didn't, I don't think when I started the Pacers, I was like, I need to find a mentor. But you meet people in your life. There's a there's a chemistry. And Jeff Simmons was one, one of those guys, the CEO of Elanco, who really is the founder of Edge. I could list others from my time at the Pacers. And so some, but a lot of millennials, I don't think, know where to go to find a mentor. And they're like, I've had coaches, I've had teachers, I've had my parents or some other family member. And so what we're trying to do is just, we live in a very age segregated society. And a hundred years ago, it was very age integrated, just families growing up, working farms together, you name it. Now it's kind of outside of your work. You probably run with people that are close to your similar age of life. There's some outliers that seek it out, but most, most don't. And so there's a train of thought and, Again, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that social media is part of the problem of this segregation, that people are more solitary, they're more alone than they ever have been, counterintuitive to the fact that I play words with friends with a girl who lives in Australia every day. So there's that connection, small c, but there are fewer capital see connections. Yeah. Do you believe that's a fair criticism based on your experience? hundred percent. We, we did a strategic plan a year ago with a grant we received from the Lilly endowment and the three big data points speak exactly to what you're calling out. One was millennials are lonelier than senior citizens. So we're the most digitally connected generation. We've got friends, we've got followers, whatever on you know, all the social media platforms, but there's a lack of real, authentic, meaningful relationships, right? So there's this disengagement from community. Secondly, less than a third of millennials are engaged in their current place of work, meaning they're actively or passively looking for a new job, which costs employers north of half a trillion dollars annually so in lost productivity. Mm. So there's a professional disengagement. And third, in our model, is the spiritual disengagement of young people that did grow up in some church or faith setting by the time they finish college, only 11% are still regularly engaged. So you take those three, community, professional, spiritual disengagement. The, the loneliness epidemic is, is a, a real thing. It might sound kind of soft and a little froofy or whatever, but I mean, it is, um, that's why you're seeing all-time high levels of anxiety and depression and suicide. And I think, I believe that the way we were created is we're hardwired for community. I mean, I know there's introverts and extroverts among us, but everybody um, wants, I think, to be known by somebody else, right? And that's just hardwired into how we were made and how we were created. It's in our DNA, I believe. And so, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of that is what Edge is doing. We're brokering, we're connecting with intentionality, with chemistry, uh, and across generations. But I do think this is what starts to create stickiness for people. And, and I think there's a talent strategy here. We can talk about that later for cities in terms of, man, if I have a mentor, 
am known by several people in Indy. Why would I want to go out to San Francisco where I'll be another number and yeah, maybe be a great experience for a couple of years, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? So it's, um, do you, do you yeah. think some of it's fear, fear of, of, you know, there's a, the, uh, spiritual advisor to the leaders and legends podcast, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, <laughs> um, once said my wife and I were happy for 30 years. Then we met. So there's part of some trepidations of, do I take this chance? Yeah. Do I put myself out there that I need someone? I need a mentor. I can't figure it out on my own. Why can't I figure it out on my own? Why can't I be successful? And when you have to lean on someone else to whatever degree, that is almost an admission. And you have to get past that in order to reap the benefits. And so the initial sort of negative reaction to needing somebody else has to be overcome. Hmm. Is that something that you've encountered? Hmm. This is really interesting. I, I don't want to uh, overgeneralize this, but I think amongst boomers, which happen to be a lot of our mentors, we have some Gen X mentors as well, there was this rugged individualism, right, that was kind of preached to that generation. It's like you got to go out, fend for yourself, your family, don't rely on anyone else. I, my belief, I'm a millennial, 84, so on the, on the older end of millennials, but um, my belief is that millennials are, I think, going to be changing that narrative to where we hunger and desire for community, maybe in a way that our parents' generation didn't, um, just because they were taught this, you know, from their parents, the greatest generation, you got to be self-sufficient and kind of this rugged individualism. I think millennials want to, and this is manifesting itself in terms of where we look for work, we want to bring our core values and, and who we are outside of work into our workspaces, right? So I think we are more open to the, the idea, the notion of depending or relying on somebody older that's kind of walked this path before us uh, in a way that maybe older generations wouldn't be, if that makes sense. So... You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. And Crown Plaza, the historic Union Station and Conference Center. We are here with Dave Neff, who is the Pontifex Maximus of EDGE. And we are talking to him not only about leadership, but we're also going to talk about his big event that actually is going to launch this coming Friday. And this podcast will be posted before then. Does it matter to you that older people mentor younger people? There is such a huge number of young people who are just absolutely killing it as entrepreneurs, inventors, especially in the tech world. Is it possible for someone who is 25 or 30 to mentor someone who is 55 or 50? I mean, it happens in the religious field all the time. I mean, I go to confession at St. John's. I'm older than that priest. Uh, but in the business world, that's almost unheard of. Or am I wrong? I think there's different forms of reverse mentoring. I think what a 25-year-old could teach a 55-year-old around technology, I mean, there's there's 
endless sort of things from a skills perspective um, that I believe young people can teach older people. Where I think older generations will never grow out of style is in the realm of just wisdom and life experience. I, you know, I don't care how much financial capital you have. If you're Mark Zuckerberg at 25, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, if he's smart, and I believe he probably does do this, would seek out older, wiser men and women that have, that have gone before him. And so I, I do think, and while we don't brand edge as like to our mentors, get into it to be reverse mentored, that happens, right? That's happening naturally, organically through the edge groups, through some of the events that we do through the burst events, women's events, EdgeX, which is happening later this week. They are, they would tell you that, like I said, for every unit they put in, they're getting five to 10 X out. So whether that's, yeah, mentorship around technology or just the energy and the ideas and seeing how this younger generation thinks and views the world, I think there's a natural sort of exchange of, of mentorship that happens. Well, and I'm very lucky in the sense that I think, I mean, not counting Mayor Ballard, uh, but most of my bosses have been younger than me. Paul Okuson was younger than me. Chris Cotterell was younger than me. Jennifer Hollowell was younger than me. Kevin Ober was younger than me. Uh, Doris Ann Sadler. I mean, so it's not that big a deal, but I got a late start in life because of the military and, and going to graduate school. And so it just didn't really kind of give it a second thought. Now, the, the fact that the current governor is younger than me means I'm obviously some sort of failure. But it's possible to to learn from people who are younger than you and have just, in some cases, just been through more. Yeah. And does that happen to you or do you experience that in your life that you talk to someone who's maybe seven, eight, nine years younger than you? Because, Dave, you're doing this all these amazing things, but you're like, man, I talked to this 26 year old a couple of days ago and holy mackerel, man, he really had it going on. It was really wise. Absolutely. I, I feel like I really try to have a learning mindset with anyone that I meet with or have a conversation with. I don't, I don't view titles or age as you know, the only types of people are, that, that I can learn from. I, um, our mentees, you know, I started in edge as just a mentee when I was working for the Pacers and I met, Jeff Simmons and joined this group that was 10 years ago. So now I'm, you know, kind of a tweener in our model where I'm 34 and probably, you know, I I should maybe take my own edge group. I don't formally have one, but I do feel like young guys will reach out and organically I've, I've built some relationships with some amazing young guys, uh, young men and women that are doing really cool things in here in the city. You know, young, young guy that's bringing pre Broadway shows to, to Indianapolis and, been back and forth between New York and I'm like, he's 25 or 26. And I'm like, this guy's going to make it happen, you know, and I'm, I'm watching him and he's reaching out to me to ask about, well, how do you go about, you know, creating sponsorships and well, what would you do in this situation? And he's got all the raw sort of talent and skills. I just am kind of like, here's what's worked for us. And so I think absolutely. I learn up and down sort of the ladder, so, so to speak. And, um, I think the moment you feel like you've, um, got it all figured out. That's, uh, that's sort of dangerous ground to, to be treading on. So, well, I'm here listening or excuse me, learning from you and I'm 17 years, almost 18 years older than you. I'll be 52 in on this in December and we wouldn't have this podcast. I wouldn't have this podcast quite frankly, without Chris Spangle, who is considerably younger than me. 
and his incredible knowledge and generosity of, of thought. And he's been amazing. So thank you, Chris, uh, for all that you've done to help this podcast. Cause I was clueless and in some ways, uh, continue to learn from younger folks because it's called leaders and legends. And you'd have to assume the legends are going to be my age or older, but that doesn't mean that the leaders are going to be my age or older, which is one of the reasons we're here with you today. And it's also probably would be remiss of me not to mention that for those who look down on millennials and, and they get lit up, uh, not completely without cause, but not totally with cause that a lot of these millennials you're huffing and puffing about are the men and women who've stepped forward post 9-11 to volunteer for the military. Mm. And my son's 30. He's done two tours in Afghanistan. He didn't have to do that. No. He could have been playing Mario Kart or whatever the hell was popular at the time, but he stepped forward. Do you find that that the generational divide can be bridged, whether it's boomers or Gen Xers or millennials, if they talk more, sit down together more? And is that it? You consider that a larger lesson for society? Mm-hmm. I this is something that I kind of beat the drum on, even just with my friends. You know, we we live in a culture in which, frankly, we, we keyboard box, as one of my buddies likes to call it. You know, we sit behind screens all day, every day, whether that's your laptop or iPad <laughs> or smartphone. And, and that's just, you know, it's efficient. That's how you manage relationships. And sometimes I had a group of buddies that have a group text and I'm like, let's actually all go hang out together, you know, cause this group text is a waste of time. Honestly, my wife gets annoyed at it cause it's just like, you know, banter about pro sports or, and others. And once it gets started, it's hard to stop. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, I, I, I literally, um, uh, a group of guys, some I go to church with, some I'm just socially friends with. We, we did a guy's night a couple weeks ago, like eight of us at one of my buddy's house. And, it was. Uh, it wasn't just to get together and, and drink beers, but it was, uh, you know, played a little basketball, and then we sat around the fire and just talked about uh, how's your marriage, you know, how are your kids, how are you, and and just tried to bring a level of intentionality because I think especially the season of life I'm in with with young kids and married and work and you know time with other guys kind of is the first thing to go, and you know it's easy to kind of just get into a unintentionally a space of uh, isolation. And so I think um, to not give up meeting together regularly in person. Now, I know it's not efficient and it takes time and Indies change. This isn't the 70s where you get lunch, you know, every week with the same people at the same restaurant. There's a lot more people in the city and it's hard to manage relationships. But I think, uh, man, if we, if more people... Mitch Daniels said it great once recently in the last year or two, maybe it was at Jim Morris's duck lunch around to not give up meeting together regularly, you know, in person with folks who probably think different than you or vote different or whatever, believe different. I, I, it sounds so simple, but I feel like that is not the first one to say it. That is certainly at the root of what has unfortunately caused so much polarization in, in our society. So that's something I try to espouse in my own life. Uh, obviously, I have a role that allows me to connect people and meet with people. But, um, yeah. Well, you have new options now that you didn't have in the 70s and 80s. Um, and just because they're new, you have to. there's this mentality that it's better. And, you know, 
there are great memes and photos and essays about how people used to write each other letters. And they stopped doing that because of the phone. Well, just the thank you notes, you know, George Bush, H.W. Bush had that book where he was talking about all the notes that he had read. Nobody writes notes anymore. It's always on the phone. Now, if someone calls me, it's like, what the hell are you doing? Send me a text, right? Like, can't you write this down? And so it's, seems to be somewhat difficult to get it right. There is no one right way. And as part of the mentoring that your organization does at all levels, are there two or three fail safe, like this works with almost everybody, almost all the time in every instance. Hmm. You're asking kind of like mentoring tactics or approaches that always work. Is that like, like like, for example, is there a particular question Mm. or approach that is just, it's just your right bower. It's, it's the powerful one. This is how every group starts out. We call it the lifeline exercise, but it's really just sharing your story. So we ask all mentors to kind of lead the way, share his or her story. And this is, uh, you know, as much or as little detail, not so much facts of I went to this high school and this college, but really shaping forces, right? And the more vulnerable, typically the better. You don't have to share all your, your deepest, darkest secrets on call one. But with the mentor modeling kind of that degree of vulnerability, I think it then over a series of calls, each mentee will share his or her lifeline. And just the simple power of sharing your story. That's a question I like to let if I'm meeting someone for coffee for the first time. So what's your story? You know, and some people take it and run with it. Some will give you a quick abbreviated, but it allows you to begin to enter into somebody else's world, right? To see kind of, oh, wow, your your parents split up when you were young. Like, okay, you know, and then some of these things, both highs and lows that have really shaped who someone is today. And so I think just asking people what's your story is one of the most effective icebreakers in mentoring. What could... And what will Edge do better? Where do you look at your organization and your approach and go, you know, that's not working for us. We have to come up with something better. Mm -hmm. So a lot of effort and energy right now, we're going to be rolling this out at EdgeX this week, is we've been getting what started as, Edge started as a, kind of a felt need amongst individuals, right? We talk about the third space. This is outside of work. This is outside of church. Over the last couple of years, more and more employers are saying, man, I've got all these millennials. How do I, how do I bring the edge magic from the third space into my company? Um, so there's life coaches, there are business coaches. Yeah. There's lots of ways where I think that the, the modern corporation or organization is saying, the annual review with the 2% raise isn't cutting it. Yeah. Yeah. So we are currently kind of creating and building an edge at work curriculum that um, we'll be sharing more about later this week, but it'll be an interesting nut to crack in terms of how do we bring the edge magic that has largely happened, like we say in this third space into the workplace. And every company has different cultural norms and values and, um, you know, how, how, 
how will this be received at a, a big company or like a Lilly or a Cummins on down to maybe a smaller mid-sized business where this could be more implemented and watched. And so, you know, it's, it's not, we're not designing this to be a silver bullet per se for all organizations, but we do think there's a massive opportunity in companies of all sizes for something like edge to really develop, um, the emerging leaders, the emerging talent, and to put some of their more senior people uh, to engage them as mentors and to deploy sort of um, their experience with with younger people. Because most corporate mentoring programs, while well-intentioned, are too one-dimensional. And so people feel like, I'm just doing this to check the box and don't really, it feels pretty transactional versus transformational. And so we're... When it's loyalty to the company, I would imagine over loyalty to the individual, right? They're trying to make the company better, perhaps through this individual. And maybe that's a different approach than edge. It's like each person needs to be mentored and where they end up is where they end up. Completely agree. So we're, we're dedicating a lot of mind share to how to, we're going to continue to do our edge groups that we've historically done that, you know, like I said, about a thousand people have directly been in a group over the last five, six years, We've got our series of a dozen to 15 edge events we do throughout the year highlighted by EdgeX. But edge at work, kind of the third leg of the stool, is something we see a lot of potential in. Of course, the devil's going to be in the details and and how we execute on it. But it's something we're really excited about. Well, we're going to talk about EdgeX in just a second, and then we'll end with the five questions. But we, not we, I kind of skipped over, and I apologize, your time at Exact Target Mm. uh, working either for or both with Scott Dorsey, who is a just incredibly impressive person. What was that like to be there and to maybe be around him and just see brilliance at work? Hmm. Yeah. So I, I rolled up through marketing. So Tim Kopp, who is the chief marketing officer is really who recruited me away from the Pacers but I'll say the two and a half years I spent with Exact Target and observing a leader like Scott, both in proximity on a few things and then even just from afar, you know, Scott has this unique, I almost like to call it like this, this pixie dust, right? Where he can just attract <laughs> talent and, and people don't like to tell him no. And he's just, he's smart. He's, um, yeah, he's got strong business acumen, but then just his way with people, I, I mean, there's never going to be a scandal with a Scott Dorsey. I mean, he's just he's just a, a really amazing guy. And as I look at kind of the generation that's coming behind, maybe uh, Jim Morris, you know, guys like Scott Dorsey, I feel like are have to be towards the towards the top of that list just in terms of what he's gone on to do with High Alpha. You know, he was chair of the Indiana Sports Corps board, a number of other things, but really a remarkable leader and a guy that you know, I would never bet against. So true statement. Indianapolis needs Scott Dorsey more than Scott Dorsey needs Indianapolis. And if it's not Scott Dorsey, insert young entrepreneur with a heart of gold in that sentence. That's absolutely true. I mean, I look at all these, what, what exact target helped to lay the foundation of this marketing tech community I mean, exact target was lightning in a bottle. I'm not saying it's not going to happen again. It's going to be really hard to replicate just the timing, the leadership, the team, the market, everything. But um, I, it's hard to imagine what you know. We wouldn't have the Salesforce Tower right now, right, without Scott and the rest of the exact target leadership team, a Corkle, um, 
Chris Baggett, you know, the co-founders, um, Peter McCormick. So absolutely Indianapolis needs Scott Dorsey. My read as an outsider, I, you know, he hasn't told me this. I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, you know, he grew up, I think, outside Chicago and then went to IU and seems to really have a love for this city and this community. So hopefully he uh, has visions to, to stay here for many more years. And and what they're doing at High Alpha by with this venture studio as well as the venture capital arm of investing and creating startup companies. I mean, it's it's creating a flywheel, not just for jobs, but hopefully high-wage jobs that will keep and attract talent both back and new talent to the state. Edge X, October 4th, 2019. We don't usually date this podcast, but we wanted to do this for you because of how kind you have been, Dave, not only to me personally, but to the podcast as a whole. You have told lots of people about it. You have sent it around. You have called me and texted me and, and just been terrifically complimentary and very gracious and we're we're deeply humbled by it and we wanted to do this for you because we want people to know about edge mentoring specifically this event edge x take it away well you're kind robert i um i admire what you guys have done and just the stories that you're sharing through this through this medium this platform hats off to you as well chris but edge x is is really our annual keystone event uh this will be our fourth year uh, it'll be sold out at over 2,200 folks. This year, it's at Northview Church on the north side of Indianapolis. But we it's a half-day, four-hour sort of high-impact, we like to call it, uh, leadership conference. So put on by Edge Mentoring, our team does all the work, sourcing the speakers, pulling the, the show flow, the event together, promoting, selling the tickets, the sponsorships, all of that. But this year, we're excited to have Sage Steele from ESPN, who's, you know, got some Hoosier ties. She's an IU grad, gave the commencement speech four years ago, 2015, to Carmel High School, graduated from there. We've got uh, Gary Brackett, formerly of the Colts, now owns a number of Stack Pickles. Uh, Ian Cron, who's an Enneagram uh, fan or Enneagram teacher. Those of you who don't know the Enneagram, a a really helpful tool in terms of uh, just self-assessment personality, how people think, how people view the world, and several other authors uh, and, and just kind of thought leaders from business, sports, and entertainment. We're also thrilled that we've got Anthony Calhoun from Wish TV. He's back for the third straight year as our MC. Brooke Martin from Wish TV, who's also great, will be doing a little fireside chat with Sage Steele. So it's really a, a pretty powerful, I, I think, four hours. And you know, we've done it four years. We've sold out every year. Last year we were at Traders Point Church, a couple years before that, Grace Church on the north side. And uh, we've had Mitch Daniels come speak two years ago. Tony Dungy was there last year. Scott Dorsey, Tamika Catchings. Uh, we just, we've had some amazing people come join. And it's really a great, we don't want just our attendees to be inspired. Yes, we hope they leave um, being inspired about their own life. This year our theme is One Life. We each have one life. How will you use yours? And so we've intentionally picked these speakers. They each have one word that coincides with that theme. And so we're, we couldn't be more excited. It's a lot of work, but the payoff and to, to hear some of the stories that come out of it, some people end up engaging with Edge either as a mentor or mentee or hopefully here at, at Edge at work. Um, but it's, it's both inspirational, aspirational as well as we want people leaving with some tools that they can employ you know, right away in their work or at home. The location for all of the edge X's as I hear you list them 
are in houses of worship. Is that something that is important to you? You've talked about the religious foundation, the faith-based foundation, excuse me, of, of edge. Do you ever think, or you're ever worried that this particular aspect of edges founding and offerings is not conducive to finding more people Yeah, because the millennial attitude towards, I don't know whether it's organized religion or just religion is significantly different than it was with succeeding generations, preceding generations. It's a good question. It's a fair question. It's something I thought a lot about. And ultimately my vision would be to move it to a third space, like a JW or convention center. I will say we're very grateful for all the, all the churches that have hosted us because it comes down to really more of a practical matter of they defray a lot of the costs by letting us use their venue and the audio. And the, I mean, you start to go off site, um, the costs go exponentially up just from room rentals and food and beverage minimums. And so it's worked really well for us to date, but it is something that I think about of, man, if this was, um, maybe not at a church, who else might it draw in just because some people have, you know, a perceived thought or stigma of, uh, and I'm not going to go to this event if it's at a church. But to get more minority candidates, a, a church is more powerful. Probably. Yeah. We, we've looked at, we actually had a conversation with light of the world, you know, thinking really outside the box of how do we take edge to, or edge X to a part of the city that wouldn't be, you know, North side mega church where we've had these events. Um, so stay tuned on that because it's something that I think we're, we're looking pretty hard at moving forward. Or maybe it's a separate event. Yeah. Could be it's that. not my job to give yeah. you more work, but <laughs> yeah. maybe it's a separate event. Yeah. Who can attend? How does someone get tickets? Yeah. So we've got about 50 tickets, less than 50 tickets left, you know, and this, this drops this week. And so, um, Anyone can attend. They're now tickets are now full value, full price at ninety nine dollars, but um, it's really a range of twenty two to seventy two in terms of our audience. So we've got a number of young professionals, even so probably college juniors and seniors that'll attend this event, on up to C suite leaders, decision makers. Um, it's really an intergenerational crowd from big companies to small companies. Last year we had people come to EdgeX from fifteen states. So this isn't just a central Indiana really? deal. People come in from across the Midwest and across the country because we have people in edge from 40 states that are part of a group. So we try to encourage our group members, if they can, to consider flying in every year for EdgeX or, or driving in um, so that they can you know, experience EdgeX, then spend maybe the weekend with their edge group, you know, have a couple meals, things like that. So we're... Um, we're anticipating, I'm not sure how many states we have represented, but 15 last year, wouldn't be shocked if it's a little bit more than that this year, but it is a, a pretty unique gathering of what I like to call curious and, and connected leaders, people that want to not just learn, but I think a lot of our crowd is coming to connect with other people who will be there. Um, and obviously it's, it's not just men because... There are several organizations that are specifically mentoring uh, female professionals, and and Edge is just one of them. What role is there specifically for a young woman, twenties, thirties, 
or even older who wants to be a mentor within Edge. Our, our female segment is actually the fastest growing segment within Edge, which I think is really interesting. Our female mentee population. And while five years ago it was probably 80-20 men to women, now it's 60-40. Um, so it's not quite 50-50. But I think the set, and I'm obviously a, a male, so I can't speak fully to the, the female mentor-mentee experience, but there are different questions. I think we'd be foolish as men to say that, the male mentoring experience is exactly the same as a female. Just women think differently. Um, if some of them obviously decide to have a family and then go back to work, I mean, different challenges that we as men don't face. And so, um, you know, through board representation, folks like Alison Melangton, who joined our board earlier this year, Jackie Morales, we are really trying to take a, a holistic comprehensive view of what's, we don't want this to just be a male dominated mentoring organization, but having, gender diversity, racial diversity in terms of how we think about the mentorship experience. Well, the city would be exponentially better if Allison Melangdid could be a full-time mentor to every single person because if there is one person I've ever met whom I could ask my daughter to grow up to be like, it would be Allison Melangdid. She's as close to a founding mother of modern Indianapolis as there ever could be. She's absolutely at the top, top of the pyramid of being a leader and an inspirational leader. She's, she's a special lady. And I, I can't tell you how many people have asked me even one off. Hey, I'd really like to see if Allison could mentor ABC young lady. And I'm always you know, trying to be gracious, but never, never putting that expectation on Allison. We're fortunate to have her, on our board, that was about a two-year courtship uh, of Allison. Had to had to wait for her to roll off a couple boards before she had enough margin to join us at Edge. But she is um, a special lady, and we're just fortunate to have her speaking into where we're headed as an organization. So, before we get to the five questions, where can someone get tickets to EdgeX? EdgeXConference.org. Uh, pretty straightforward. From there, you can see the lineup of speakers, a little promo video, and yeah, would love to see you out there. Say it again. EdgeXConference.org. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer, and the Crown Plaza at Historic Union Station and Conference Center. My good friend Jim Dora Jr. is now a sponsor and has been for quite a while. Uh, he's a terrific leader been on IMPD reserve for 30 some years. It's amazing. 20, I think, let me say 28 years. His father was head of the capital improvement board. And that's just an example of one generation instilling and passing on to another generation. We don't all have fathers like that or mentors like that, but edge gives you that opportunity to walk into a room and have someone who's done amazing selfless things tell you how it's done. So we've reached the five questions part. Are you ready? I'm ready. You should so, know all these because God I, love you. You yeah, listen to all the podcasts. I, I, I listened to them, and I was thinking about this earlier today. And I don't know if I have all my questions framed, but or answers framed. But I'll be, I'll be ready. Did Sarah help you uh, get these uh, soundbite ready? Yeah, Sarah's great, but she didn't prep me on these. So <laughs> we'll see what we'll see what comes out here. What was your first job? So first job where I was really making some money, I would ref soccer games, you know, in high school, but. 
something maybe a little bit uh, a little bit more salient would be I worked at Fazoli's there in Castleton. Uh, I don't know if it's still there or not. I mean, this was you know 18, 19 years ago now, but it's a check that, cashing place. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Probably. I, 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 it was about a six-month stint. So I was a sophomore in high school. I think I'd quit playing soccer. And my dad's like, well, if you're not going to play soccer, you're going to get a job. And so I uh, went to Fazoli's, wore a bunch of different hats. That was my brief stint in the QSR uh, world. So that was, that was probably it other than, you know, ref and sports games. What was your first concert? I knew you were going to ask this. You know, I think growing up... Heritage Christian, I mean, I listen to music, don't get me wrong, but I don't think I went to Deer Creek, you know, growing up, which is a shame. I, my first concert experience there was probably when it was Verizon or one of the more recent names. Ozzy um, didn't play the assembly? Yet. No, no, no. So, I, you know, I'm trying to think a concert I went to in high school. It probably wasn't until college that I went to some singer-songwriter, Matt Wirtz, acoustic shows at, at the living room there in Muncie. So... Nothing super memorable jumps out about my first Have you concert. been to Deer Creek? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dave right. Matthews. I mean, I, the country shows. Again, now I've got young kids, so probably haven't been to Deer Creek or Ruoff in a handful of years. But there was well, the Wiggles were just at the uh, Mira. <laughs> <laughs> we, I get it. I understand. Uh, if you could recommend any book to someone, which book would you choose? You know, a book I read probably four years ago now is called Essentialism by Greg McCune. He actually spoke at our first EdgeX, but um, it was all about, I mean, it was super practical and helpful, but learning to dis- discern the vital few from the trivial many, right? So kind of one of these, just how you think about your life and, and what you're involved with and what you commit to. I mean, I've, I've recommended it to a handful of people, and it's like they say it's changed their lives. So The Essentialism by Greg McCune is, uh, was a really impactful, more recent book that I've, that I've read. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? You've heard everybody else. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of these. Man, there's, you know, I think about kind of an inspiring figure, that, that inspires me. He's not, not an American, uh, but William Wilberforce, you know, and everything that he was involved with, uh, abolishing slavery in England. And, but if I were to think like purely sort of American event event, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to, uh, this, the signing, I know others have said this, the signing of the declaration of independence would be, would have been a pretty cool moment. I feel like to, uh, just be a part of, but, um, yeah. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world living two hours off the record, talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? Man, there's a lot of ways to go with this. I think any of our former presidents, and here's why, and and if I were to pick one, probably George W., just because he seems like he'd be, both my grandfathers have passed, but he'd be like a really cool grandpa, you know, just like his energy and his, you know, I've I've never met him, but I think if you've been president of this country, just the stories that you could tell, right, of just your life experience. And I, I, again, leading a mentoring organization, I think stories are powerful. We each have one. And so to sit down for two hours with a former president, I'd sit down with any of them. But George W., just because of his his spunk, I feel like would be a pretty entertaining couple hours. And presidents have been a very popular answer. I think George W. Bush was that 
Greg Ballard's answer. Um, so to your point, it would be fun to try to get as much inside scoop as you could get from someone who literally can destroy the world, but also uplift the world and the country through so much of what he or she can do. A few minutes ago, I said that, uh, asked the question, does Indianapolis need Scott Dorsey more than Scott Dorsey needs Indianapolis? And the answer to the same question is phrased differently. Indianapolis needs Dave Neff and Indianapolis needs edge mentoring and our generation and the coming generations, our city need people who are willing to work together, who see the path as lit by edge. And we cannot be more grateful for your support. Thank you, Dave, very much. You're very kind. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.